0: All right. So I'm gonna take a pause and then we'll get into it. Welcome back to episode four of Festival and Event Production presents Industry Insights. I'm your host, Mike Hanley, and I will be giving you all some updates today in the event and festival worlds, including the Super Bowl. And then we'll dive right into our co-headlining special guests, John Lipford and Jennifer Larris. And then we'll close with some information about one of my favorite nonprofits, We Are Blood, and how important it is now more than ever to give blood if you're able. So stay with us. Here we go. Quick update on federal funding and how everything's going in terms of financial relief. I know we're all waiting for... The next round of the stimulus checks to be passed and as of this recording uh, that still hasn't happened in the meantime i did find a really interesting website called musiccovidrelief.com and that link will be in our webpage um, and it's great it's uh brought to you by partners in the u.s music community and they pretty much aggregated all the ways you can receive unemployment small business loans relief and potential grants Uh, and other resources as well so just in case you wanted to make sure that you've done your diligence on where you might be able to find some extra funding this might be a great place to look so we'll make sure to have that link in our webpage Uh, some other interesting news that came out in our world is ticketmaster has launched a new live stream ticketing service which you know again it's just indicative of where we're at right now you know they were basically saying in 2020, they had an explosion in virtual ticket sales. So, as an example, you know they sold over 125,000 tickets to a virtual performance in the UK with people from over 150 different countries tuning in. So that's uh, kind of a, a sign of the times. They're ready to launch something that will cater better to the virtual platforms. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, continues to work as we move along with uh, the vaccinations and the pandemic hopefully subsiding. But it's clear that virtual is here to stay in some capacity. It's just a matter of how it's going to be integrated and and how we're going to reintegrate physical events once we're able to. So while there aren't really any other major updates that I know of in the event and festival world in terms of major events canceling or anything like that, One interesting event did happen uh, in between our last two episodes, and that is a Super Bowl. And one of the coolest things about it was uh, the way that they were able to get around and make the most of the COVID restrictions that were most likely there in in terms of the stage build and everything. You're used to seeing a massive stage being built literally in the, I want to say they have around nine minutes or so to Build it uh, once the second quarter ends and halftime show begins. Just imagine the amount of labor that you'd have to have in close quarters. You, they probably just couldn't figure out a way to do that and keep everybody safe. Uh, having the permanent stage being built at the upper end of one of the end zones was a really great idea. And on that note, I'll share in our webpage here there's some CAD drawings that have been published that. Are really cool to look at, and then Tate, the really big creative company out of Pennsylvania, they just posted a time lapse video of all the custom carpentry and the work that they did building that massive stage. So um, that's that was really cool to see as well, and I'll I'll post that. What was really interesting is not only did the weekend not take any money from that performance, which is common, I, I believe most performers don't get paid for that. The main reason why is because they will see such a spike in. Either concert ticket sales, or album sales, or live uh, streaming, and he did. Uh, apparently, he saw a 384 percent rise in online sales um, after his performance. So, you know, not only did he get that, but he also invested seven million of his own money to ensure that it was done to his exact specifications. And I believe it will be a lead-in to his upcoming tour. And so, it would be very interesting to see how that. Plays out in terms of once he starts going, how similar the stage sets are, and, and how he plans to bridge that. But that is something unique. Usually, you don't see them spending their own money to to make it work to their vision. But he did, and I was very impressed with what they were able to pull off and what they were able to do, given the fact uh, that there were COVID restrictions in place. And um, it was it was a really cool thing to see. I love seeing all these people put to work as well. I had a couple of colleagues out there. And it was just really good, again, just that warm, fuzzy feeling you get knowing that some people are getting put back to work. Uh, it, was, it was just awesome to see. Moving forward in the spring here, as we hopefully get out of winter pretty soon, um, right now in Austin, it's actually quite cold, but that hasn't stopped us from having drive-in events, from having pod-based events, and uh, some local bars with large outdoor patios are continuing their socially distant events as well. So it's been really nice to see that, and I imagine around the, the country as well, that's going to start happening more frequently once it gets a little bit warmer. I do think that's kind of the way it's going to be for a little bit longer. Great that we just got the news that they're you know promising 300 million vaccinations by midsummer, I believe July. I just saw that today. Um, I, I hope that works out and I, I really do hope that we get to that point where anybody that wants a vaccine can get one by midsummer. I think that would be uh, such a really great help for us to continue to get our industry back on track and to ensure that at a minimum, we can do a lot of events in the fall that we're we're hoping on. So one note I wanted to make, we usually mention a couple training updates. One of the things that I wanted to kind of highlight is the fact that there's also really good uh, long-term professional certifications you can get. Now, these are going to take a while to do. They might cost a fair bit of money, but if you have the resources and you're able, this might be the best time for you to do that. And this is sort of a prelude into our our interview with John and Jen. But two of the ones that kind of stick out in in our minds is the Certified Meeting Professional (CMP) and the Certified Special Events Professional. And I'll have links to both of those in our webpage, uh, so you can take a look and see if they're they're right for you. But I know a lot of people that are CMPs, and you know, in a way, it's kind of our industry's equivalent of getting a master's degree, where you know you can do events and and not have it. Uh, I personally do not have it. But I know people that do, um, oftentimes they'll get not only more resources allocated to them, but they might have more opportunities because they, they have that certification. Um, it's especially needed if you are focused in the conference convention side of things. Uh, you can take a look at those links on our webpage. Again, that's at podcast.festivalandeventproduction.com. We've got a wonderful interview today. I'm really excited to introduce you guys to John and Jen here. John is a co-founder and Jen is the executive director of Frontrunner Productions, and they're known for producing both music festivals, including All Things Go in Washington, D.C., as well as high-profile political events, including both Obama inaugurations. And just recently, they were part of the production team for the Biden inauguration's Field of Flags on National Mall. Stay tuned. They're coming up next. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. Joining me today is... John Lipford and Jennifer Laris. They are with Frontrunner Productions, and they are longtime colleagues of mine based in Washington, D.C. And uh, we're going to chat a little bit about how they've adjusted from the last year or so and what they've been doing recently and what they have to look forward to in the future. So welcome to the show, John and Jen. Hello, hello. Thank you very much for having us.
1: Hi there. Yeah, thanks.
0: Well, John, we'll start with you. Uh, give us a little bit of background, your origin story. How did you get into the event and festival business and, uh, and how did you start working political events?
2: Thank you. I, I guess my initial sort of inspiration for becoming involved, events um, came from the theater. My older sister, who was about eight years older than me, was involved in a lot of theater productions when she was, uh, say, high school age. And oftentimes, like if she was in a, she was in a production of The Christmas Carol, and I ended up being Tiny Tim, and actually played a role in one of her high school productions when I was in grade school. Um, so I got sort of early exposure and I'll tell you, that way. By the time I got to high school. I was running and managing the stage crew uh, and lighting and production teams for the theater uh, at my high school. You know that was an incredibly valuable experience for me in terms of you know getting to know equipment and just methodologies and 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 design thinking and uh, a whole lot of other sort of attributes and skills that I look to cultivate later on down the road. Um, I guess fast forward a few years, I studied sculpture in college, got an internship at the White House um, in 1999, it was sort of uh, I had taken some political science courses, and it was a little bit of a, a, a fluke. But I submitted an application, ended up getting put in the operations office, which was right next to the department that handled all of the presidential trips. And I, you know, soon discovered like, oh, you know, there's all this this whole group of young people that are traveling around the world producing events for the president. And I thought that with my theater and production background, that I had, you know, something. Particular to add to that operation. Ever since then, I've been involved in doing um, uh, presidential-level advance work, either on campaigns or on behalf of the White House itself, and doing televised events for presidential campaigns. Um, sort of developed out of that initial like internship experience uh, during the Clinton White House.
0: Oh, that's amazing. And your first real big event, was it the inauguration in 2009? Or were there a few leading up to that one?
2: You know, as you're doing an event, they're all big to you. Um, <laughs> Very true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would say I, you know, saw sort of a a arc in my career, you know, we would have flurries of activities typically around the presidential cycles where things get very, very fast and furious very, very quickly. Yeah. That, that has driven, you know, sort of a lot of that art my focus sort of ever since, yeah, the late nineties. Excellent. Doing a fusion of sort of the the political space with entertainment and production. Got it. Jen, what about yourself? How did you get started in this business?
1: Well, I think I was, Raised to be an event organizer, I grew up in a household of constant entertainers. Uh, my mom and stepfather were housers for Virginia opera, so we always had opera singers living with us, which meant there was always a party going on, always something <laughs> happening um, so that 's awesome. I just thought it was natural to always be planning something and as a child and a and a young adult, I was the one who was initiating and organizing all sorts of activities. In college, I founded an organization predominantly because my friends all wanted to live on the same hall, but we also had a ulterior motive with an eye on ecosystems and environmental activism. And so we used this to springboard community events and educate our local farm community on non-point source pollution and a variety of other things. And what I didn't realize at the time is I was really becoming an event planner and an organizer. And when it came to graduate, I... Uh, was very proud to go take my first job. I was going to go sell insurance for American Express. You know, I was really pumped. Uh, And my mom stepped in and said, I really think you would be bad at that. Um, But, (laughs) but you would be really good at event planning. You know, it's really hard when you're getting out of college. All you want to do is make your first big decision on your own without your parents' influence. And here comes mom yet again saying she knows better. (laughs) But what she had done unbeknownst to me was go to an intro night with GW. George Washington University had just started a master's program in event production. So mom went. And she brought me the information and said, you don't have to listen to me, but if you do this last time, I promise you won't regret it. And I shared that story with a professor I really respected. And she said, you know, Jen, just this one last time, you got to give it to your mom. She's right. And <laughs> and she was. I went and got a master's in tourism administration with a concentration in event management from GW. It was the best thing I ever did. I loved it. And I haven't looked back. I immediately started that program before I even graduated from college and just raced forward 18 months. And this is the perfect industry for me to be in. My mom gets all the credit, not only because she was right in that moment, but she raised me in an environment knowing and seeing without actually telling me how you put things together. You know, dinner parties. And opera galas and fundraisers are no different from what we do every day, whether it is a music festival, a political convention, or a fundraising dinner all the logistics are the same. So, you know, I went through that and and jumped forward from 1999 to uh, 2008 and sort of sponging up information about the industry when I was introduced to a wonderful woman who was working for, at the time, Senator Barack Obama. And I just became fascinated with her story and her relationship to the candidate. And that sort of sprung me into the political space because I had never really considered politics. Prior to this, I had worked in opera, I'd worked in the opera industry, I'd worked in snow sports for a number of years, producing events for National Snow Sports Association. I'd worked in hotels, and I kind of just gathered all these bits and pieces and had put together this great resume of experience, but had never considered politics a place to do events. But I lived in Virginia. I was so close to D.C. You know, I really should have. It should have fallen on my radar, but it didn't. And when I met Ellie, I just fell in love with her idea, her background, her story, and her relationship to this candidate. And what she told me about him also got me very engaged. So I had the audacity to just say to her, at the end of our time working together, how can I have your job without you losing it? No brass tacks here, buddy. Right. And she said, you know what? (laughs) Good Good question. And here I've got a great answer. Um, We're getting ready to hit the general election and we're going to need more people to do the job that I'm doing right now. So when are you available? And I ran upstairs and quit my job and jumped on the campaign trail and haven't looked back since. And that led to this whole new fascinating world where in 2009, I had the pleasure to work with John in. We had been on similar teams, but never really interacted with each other during the campaign. But in 2009, we were doing an event in Moscow and really got to spend more time together. We were actually, I was his second on an event. And it just sort of sprung, our working relationship sprung from there, getting to know each other and work, finding out he was sort of the creative I was missing in my life and my professional life and getting to start doing projects that he was working on sort of led us to this day, how many years later now, right? 11 years. <laughs> it's the longest sustainable relationship I've had <laughs> outside of my family, you know? Right. Uh, and it's, it's been fantastic. So we here we are still doing it, still doing political events, doing nonprofits and mm-hmm. branching out in all kinds of creative ways.
0: That's amazing. And I mean, you speak to that. It's like you guys have been a partnership for a long time and you've created so much along the way. Uh, not even just the inaugurations in 09 and 13, but also, you know, all the other events at the White House, whether it's the egg rolls or, you know, South by South on some of the things that we've even worked on together. Now that you guys are, you know, have solidified this, and you guys have been a team for a long time, let's go ahead and move forward to 2020. Let's just jump right into March. How did that all play out for you guys? I imagine you guys had a a huge year looking forward. And just like a lot of us, you know, we all had really good plans for last year. Can you walk us through a little bit, John, we can start with you. Once it started hitting with the pandemic, um, how did that change everything from uh, your event schedule?
2: Pretty radically, um, as it did, you know, I think most other people in the industry for me, I, during that, yeah, January, February, March time was sort of peak Bernie Sanders, if you guys uh, yep. recall. He had, you know, jo- just come off uh, several significant primary victories. There was discussion for, you know, all of a, of a few weeks about, you know, his inevitability as a nominee. And and so there was a lot of uh, energy and momentum building around that we were doing, we were filling... You know massive venues, twenty thousand, 10,000 person crowds you know multiple times a day and uh, we were we were sort of knee deep in in all of that production and coordination um, for his live televised events. And then March 13th happened was the was the last event that we built uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. We set that event up. Um, had it all ready to open doors and we started to get like a weird vibe around midday you know, we could tell from the staff from the campaign and stuff who were on site that like, you know, there was obviously discussion going on. I think there was uh, in some cases, you know, there was a lot of discussion obviously in the news media and stuff about events and and, in various markets around the country being shut down, but it was Mm -hmm. so scattershot at that point. That it wasn't quite universal, but I think March thirteenth was the day that like it became universal. Like the Trump people pulled down their event. There was you know other events. I believe the Biden uh, campaign had events scheduled that day Mm -hmm. as well, and they ended up getting pulled down. And from then on, there was the entire at least political cycle uh, became virtual. So how did
0: that work for you in terms of making it virtual? Was that uh, an easy transition or was that something that you guys had to um, really figure out very quickly?
2: There was a lot of commonality because I mean while we while we had done uh, a lot of events that were exclusively online, what we were producing for the live space was sufficiently had sufficient corollaries uh, that made the transition you know very easy because we were already, you know, producing for broadcast television, doing packages like video packages that were, you know, edited and such to be consumed, in most cases by large audiences of people gathered in a room, all of a sudden that just became, okay, well, we just need to change the thinking a little bit here and put more of a, like, television Um, sort of lens on the whole thing and that from a technical perspective honestly didn't prove that challenging there was you know some learning curve around uh getting to know the various like virtual event platforms and and the ins and outs of the various sort of tools that were out and available in the space and, and and being used uh by lots of people but the biggest difference for us was just like you know in the past, you know, we'd have a live event where we'd be producing that content. We'd be producing an online stream of, you know, the the, the programming and such. All of those were already kind of built into our live event space practice. Right. Uh, all of a sudden you had to do so many more of them because, you know, we used to dig in on a big project a major conference or a major event you know, that would be six months of work for, an, for a large team. And, you know, all, the economics of the virtual space are so vastly different. That was the biggest kind of pivot was just mm-hmm. having to understand like, oh, all of a sudden we're going to keep the business afloat by doing virtual events. You'd have to do a lot more of them. Right. And so that that was the biggest, I think, adjustment that was necessary was was being able to take on more volume. Got it.
0: Uh, Now, Jen, at this time, can you walk us through uh, what was your experience in March and and how were you uh, dealing with everything as the pandemic started?
1: You know, we had heard we obviously knew this was coming. We knew this was the things were transitioning a little bit. It was a little different. Um, and often while John is on the road doing those kinds of events, I'm back at the office holding down the fort and uh, handling other things. So I was having conversations with some of our clients who we still had live events on the calendar for and trying to figure out what our next move was going to be. And yeah. on March 13th, on uh, at that time, I was physically in North Carolina for my nephew's uh, birthday party and suddenly found everything was getting locked down. What am I going to do? How am I? And I, and I brought, you know, a four days worth of clothing and, um, found myself basically there for a month, almost a month. And in conversations with our clients, we started trying to talk about what does this look like to take this, you know, three day festival and make it, is it a, is it a, a, a series of concerts? Is it a online conversation? How are we pivoting that? So just, Trying to manage those relationships and watching as the clients are struggling because they're now losing their sponsorship. They're losing, you know, some of the talent they were working with was international and couldn't be here. And just sort of finding myself in that new space. And I am not the technical one on our team. So working with our technical team and determining the best way to pivot some of these events and some of these conversations really took up a lot of my focus in March and April um, and May to sort of. Uh, help guide our clients towards next steps and figuring that out. And it turned out I ended up staying in North Carolina for four months. It was just the safest, oh, wow. easiest thing to do. Yeah. I did take a weekend to grab some more clothing and then went down to North Carolina and stayed there to just ride it out when everything in DC locked down. It was so hard being in a city that's so tight and a community that's so close together physically it made sense for me to stay in North Carolina. And that's what I did. And I I ended up actually working with a couple of local organizations in North Carolina, helping them do online galas and fundraisers and just kind of fill the time a little bit. Um, And I personally got better at the online, at the technological side of things that I really hadn't needed to focus on before because I, you know, the production team handled a lot of that stuff more when I'm more operations. So it's been a really fascinating learning experience. Definitely. As John mentioned, it, you know, a much, um, it, it takes a lot more of these projects to, to pull together the same revenue and to support ourselves. And right. our, we, and our, our partners, we had a lot of hard conversations about how the business was going to go and how we were going to, you know, how we were going to sustain ourselves over the over the next few months. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we did a pretty good job. So, you know, we just took a breather and use the opportunity to learn some new skills and uh, work with some new clients and um, expand a new category in our, in our portfolio.
0: You know, that's a great, uh, a great way to do it. And I, I think you're right. You know, the economy uh, of all this really, def- it changed a lot um, and not even just with virtual events and hybrid events, but, you know, we've even seen people try to do drive-ins and uh, try to do pod-based events and, uh, the economies of all of that—it's—it's it's tough, um, but I love the innovation that we're seeing, and you know we're all learning new things as a result of all of this. I know we're all experts on Zoom by now, <laughs> and uh, and so I, I love that. I, I wanted you guys to kind of walk us through. Let, let's kind of look at the fall. Were you guys able to hop a little bit back on the the campaign trail and do some socially distant rallies and uh, you know and political events at that point?
2: Yes, um, fortunately, fortunately so. I think I you know right about the time that uh, they started doing more like small gathering uh, events for the Biden campaign once a uh, uh, post convention. Uh, as you've been announced a nominee, uh, I went on the road for, I guess, the final like two months of the campaign or so. Oh, great. And uh, was, yeah, producing m- mostly message events, uh, but also did, yeah, some drive-in format. Yeah. So I was, was able to to get out there, you know, it felt really good, honestly, to A, support a campaign that I, I felt very strongly in. Um and moreover, just to get out of the house. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I was joking with people at the time that it was, I was like Martin Sheen uh, in Apocalypse Now when the, when the agents come to like dust him off before they send him out on his mission <laughs> and he's in the hotel room in this like state of like sort of uh, emotional and, and, and uh, physical despair. Uh, but you know, dusted myself off, went out, got on the campaign and I really like, sort of invigorated uh, me personally and got the energy flowing uh, in a way that, you know, being stuck at home, you know. It, it no speaks comparison. to our, our
0: nature to collaborate and to be social. I mean, we are social beings. It's baked into our DNA. And uh, I guess we all didn't really realize how much we needed until we didn't have it anymore. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, it's, and it's, it's so true. And I think um, whether it's a drive in or whatnot, you know, uh, even if it's not a full uh, pre-COVID type event, um, it just felt so good to get back out there. And I'm sure you loved that first time you were outside and you saw... A truck coming in with chairs, even though you knew you're gonna space them six feet apart, like yes, the chair delivery is here. this is amazing, you know, <laughs> so uh, you know the first time you put a radio on in twenty twenty I think we all remember that you know <laughs> it's uh yeah. it's a it's a neat thing so well well, Jen, while he's doing that and he's on the road in the fall, uh tell us a little bit more about what you were up to uh while he was doing that
1: well, it's interesting because it took not only the production companies, a chance to reflect and pivot, but it also took our clients a chance to understand what this new world looks like. Mm -hmm. um, And that it still costs money to put on an event, even if it's a virtual event, there's still labor involved. And that was a big part of the struggle in the spring and the early summer was to educate our clients on what it takes to do this. You know, we're putting out proposals and on all kinds of online tutorials and uh, conferences and everyone's saying, but it shouldn't cost that much, but it's still labor. So by the fall, everyone was getting it more. We were getting more and more inquiries for, for conferences from people who understood it and got it. And we ended up uh, doing a number of get out the vote uh, programs around the election. One particular project that was really fun for us to bite, to bite into was called Fridays for Unity. And it was a huge collaboration of a variety of different event producers who pulled in a number of talent. And we did two episodes each, about 90 minutes that were um, in partnership with Rolling Stone. So that was really fun. That kept my fall very busy because now we're taking we're doing, we're coordinating interviews between, you know, elected officials and Hollywood personalities and getting all of this phenomenal original content in a way that we hadn't had the chance to do in the preceding several months, six months or so. And it was really exercising my muscles. So even though I wasn't putting on a radio or jumping in my golf cart, which is my favorite thing to do. I, Mm -hmm. my brain was moving again. Like John was talking about getting out of the house and moving his physical muscles. My brain was starting to engage again. And I was like, oh, I know how to do a production schedule. And I remember how to write a run of show and I know how to, you know, so (laughs) pulling all those elements back together and still supporting the campaign, supporting the political movement and the progressive movement in this country was really exciting to be back in the, in the game again, so to speak. And that was really fun. That was a great way to spend the fall leading into the election cycle um and then leading into the runoffs that inevitably always happens. But um, you know, that was that was a great uh, a great way to get back into the action.
0: That's awesome. Uh, and, and I think too, you know in the fall, I think we all realized okay, there are ways we can do this safely and and um and I agree we kind of all hunkered down in the spring and the early summer and now we're starting to get back out there, and we have a better understanding of how to contain and mitigate the spread. And so, you know, I was paying attention to these rallies and seeing what everyone was doing, and um, it was really impressive. Some of the photos out there, you can tell how much care you guys all took to ensure that they were as safe as possible. And and I I really think that that went a long way. I wanted you guys to kind of elaborate a little bit. Let's let's talk about election night. I would love to just hear what was your what, what was each of your days like on election night.
2: This was uh, one of the, I, I guess, lower key election nights uh, for me in the past, you know, having produced both of Barack Obama's mm-hmm. um, election nights uh, events. This one, I, w- I actually was driving back uh, from Atlanta. I was okay. in a car by myself the entire day because I had uh, done a get out the vote event the night prior. Uh, in Atlanta with President Obama, 2 Chains, and you know, Stacey Abrams, um, both of the, the now victorious Senate candidates. So yeah, I, I, I was just in the car on election day this year. It was uh, low key for me.
0: But well, that's great though. You were focusing on you know, the final two runoffs in Georgia. Uh, that's, that's awesome. Jen, what about yourself?
1: I was, um, I was working. I was already on the next project We had um, a big event that happened to be the week after the election, and I spent that whole day. Normally, on election day, we would have been somewhere in person doing some sort of live event. And for me, it was just flipping over to the next thing, but having CNN on to my left and sort of watching as things transpired or didn't transpire. Mm -hmm. Um, But so it was kind of nice that day being distracted by the next project. Um, and being, Because we had so much to get accomplished with doing video recordings and all that other fun stuff. And then in the evening, watching things sort of slowing down and then obviously not being called just yet, being able to say, okay, I'm just going to go to bed. Because in 2016, I had a very different experience. In 2016, I was in the heart of New York at Hillary's election event that ended up being obviously a very disappointing evening. But... <laughs> You know, that day just kind of I can't even tell you specifically what I did that day because I was so in work mode and I was so happy to be there that, OK, today was Election Day. Our other work was working towards that. Now I'm on the next project, um, <laughs> which is kind of kind of nice after a quiet stretch.
0: No, absolutely. And and of course, you know, it it wasn't like we knew uh, definitively what was going to happen at the end of that night. It stretched out for a few days. So I can imagine being focused on that was definitely a nice distraction um, For sure. In the end, uh, Biden wins. And now we've got the inauguration to come up. And I-, I wanted you guys to walk us through a little bit. What was it like being part of the inauguration team that did help install those 200,000 US flags? Uh, from us, from a standpoint, you know, uh, not only someone that's in the industry, but just able to see what you guys did from afar. It was gorgeous. It, it was brilliant, really. It was-, it was a really great idea that I don't think anyone necessarily really thought of but it made perfect sense for what we are dealing with and the fact that people can't be there in person. So I would love to get a little more um, detail from you guys. Uh, What was your experience like working on that project?
2: It was wild. It was honestly, uh, you know, obviously very different than past inaugurations. The previous two, I had spent, you know, the bulk of the time trying to figure out how to manage the you know, million or so people who are going to be gathering on the mall to view the inauguration. Um, and this one, obviously, you know, we had to take it in a very, very different direction, but I think ultimately like the vision that the, the, the presidential inaugural committee devised and, you know, ultimately sent, you know, a, a, a team of us to go execute on their behalf um, was thoughtful and ultimately it ended up being you know incredibly visually compelling um i think that it benefited from you know being sort of a surprise to people because i Mm. think people were expecting like there to be you know certain elements of it be it the the some of the concert like activities and the memorial that took place at at the lincoln Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there was a lot of sort of advanced focus on those aspects. You know, people were talking about the parade and, you know, what that was good, how much, how radically different that would be and so forth. There wasn't a lot of conversation around the mall and then it just sort of quietly emerged and, and was part of, you know, first the memorial event and then for swearing in day itself and the evening to follow. Um, and yeah, I've, I've never seen anything so beautiful in my life it was magical.
0: Yeah, it was incredible. And I think um, one of the things that we'll share with our podcast listeners on our corresponding webpage is, uh John recently published a really cool look at uh, inauguration from, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, John, I believe it was 2013 um, and then of this year and just the difference between seeing the sea of people and the, the sea of flags. And it's a really cool juxtaposition. So we'll have those photos, uh, on our webpage and we'll have a few extra ones as well. Just showing the your scope of it. Um, how many days did that really take to build? Um, how long were you guys out there?
2: I want to say it was a little over three weeks start to finish.
0: Oh, wow.
2: Okay. It was, we were, we were in for a little, uh, just about two weeks on the front end. It was basically up and operational for like three days. And then we, Packed it all up and took it home. Uh, w- run, quick question before
0: I, I I asked Jen a couple things. Uh, where did the flags end up going? Or are they? Uh, was there anything special that we did after the flags were uh, loaded out?
2: Yes. So there were there were many many types of different types of flags, um, varying sizes and 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 such. And so like different groups of flags were given to various pe- groups of people. Like I think you know we had very large state flags that we hung from these 40 foot poles uh those i believe were given to uh the senators from each state oh wow the small flags of which there were uh 200 thousand some uh mm-hmm. like 12 by 18 flags uh, those were sent to DC public schools, so they they took the, those as a as a as a donation. Other flags were, yeah, give used used as gifts. I think you know a certain amount the the White House was keeping, you know, sort of for for posterity, posterity. And, and such. That's uh,
0: awesome. Um, and I think you know what, what's really great about what you guys did was it was it was just very symbolic and uh, very simple yet unbelievably gorgeous. It's amazing how. Yeah, pretty. Uh, a waving American flag on a stick in the wind could be 100 <laughs> percent. And even just seeing the the different camera angles from when they were on uh, the steps there at Capitol and, you know, going through the inauguration, it was just it, it couldn't have been much better. So uh, kudos to you and uh, and y'all's team on that. Now, Jen, walk us through uh, your perspective of that day and, and uh, the inauguration leading up to it. How was it like for you?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's so special to be a part of any inaugural event of any kind, whether it's a ball or a luncheon or a service day project or the, you know, activations on the mall or down at the Lincoln. And this year was no different in that sense. It was a huge honor to be included as part of the team, particularly after a year of zero gigs, zero physical um projects it felt good you talk about the first time you put your radio on that was the first time i'd put a radio on and i was ecstatic i wanted to hug it (laughs) you know i jumped in the golf cart with glee i was so excited to (laughs) be there at sunrise and you know see the 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 large volume of labor that was required to build that site even though it was a site with no real, no in-person audience, very limited in-person audience. It took a a vast number of people to put it together. So the job creation was brilliant to see the enthusiasm on the labor's face as they came in every day. So excited to, again, just like me, be on the job, be working, be doing, and to get to do it on our national mall representing our next president in front of the Capitol and the Washington monument. I mean, it is chill inducing. It never gets old. And it's one of the reasons I continue to live in DC is this is, this is the epicenter of America. Absolutely. To participate and have a small role uh, was just phenomenal. You know, my responsibility was really uh, coordinating the logistics of the media who you know, were in those pods running up and down the sides the north and southern side of the mall. And even the media were a little quizzical. They were like, "What are we covering again? Like we you know <laughs> we're gonna see the capitol, but what is happening here?" And they, you know we couldn't tell them all the things that were coming up, but to see the enthusiasm that came up on their faces, as they saw the flags going in, they saw it being built. Um mm-hmm. was really something else because ever, it was so different. It was so new. It was yeah. Yeah, it was fresh. Everyone was just fresh faced and like, oh my gosh, this is the exact page turner that we needed to jumpstart the enthusiasm for this country again.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And and uh there's a really great time lapse, uh, a couple of them I think that I've seen that show some of the build. And it's just uh, unbelievable to see, you know, you can tell it's just days long and a few more flags, few more flags, few more flags. Yeah. Cause you know, you guys all have to remember out there, they're not just putting them in the ground and calling it a day. You have to measure it. You have to get it exactly right. Yep. I mean, there's a lot of planning. I'm sure the CAD drawing was very intricate. Um,
1: it was intense and just, and seeing the line of people, they coordinated it so well having, yeah. you know, there were two people sitting on either side with a tape measure and, One, two, three, go. Everyone's stuck. You know, we we all participated in putting the flags in the ground. Oh, great. And then stepping back and waiting for the line to be drawn again. And then you go and you put your three flags in and then step back. And it's you've got 70 people, 80 people wide putting in those flags one line at a time. And it's wow. even that in and of itself was really phenomenal to, to watch and to participate in. It was very cool.
0: I believe you answered one of my questions I was going to ask you is those tents, those 10 by 10 tents that flanked, you? those are all for media, you said?
1: They were all media pods. Um, we had a total of, I think we had 40, 20 on each side. And um, media outlets signed up through the presidential inaugural committee to have positions on the mall. And we set them up, they each had a 10 by 10 space and did their coverage based on whatever their network wanted, which was fantastic. Some people were there all day long for the days they were allowed. Some only came the day of the inauguration, just dependent on whatever their broadcasting schedule was.
0: Got it. That makes sense. So, walk me through, guys. How did you all feel uh, security wise? Just given the the recent events that had happened a week prior, um, how did you guys feel about being on site at the mall? And you know, can you walk us through that a little bit?
2: I would say at first, really apprehensive. I mean, because like already, like you know, we spent a considerable amount of time thinking, well, how? Because I've I've done now numerous events, you know, outside uh, during COVID, right. but the added, the added complexity of being outside in January <laughs> where like, <laughs> it's not in like, you can't... yeah, I mean, it was one thing in the middle of the summer to be like, okay, we're just going to have an open air catering tent and it's not going right. to have each back. And like, everyone's going to sit far apart from each other and stuff like that, like right. it, things that, that, you know, uh, required a, a, a fair amount of engineering and that was just for COVID. Then you add, yeah, the added complexity of, of you know, the entire fabric of our country falling apart on, on January sixth, and then you know, it sort of, yeah, recontextualized everything. Um, I would say, you know, at first, yeah, super apprehensive just about being out there with still remnants of the kind of protest element um, were, you know, still around. And, and you know walking around the national parks and around DC uh, in the days following that, um, and you know we started loading in essentially the, the, the following day. But I oh. would say as the, uh, the the National Guard footprint went from somewhere between I think it started somewhere in the 2500 range uh, and went up to the 25,000 range. Um, mm-hmm. such that by the time that we were like at Show Day, like we had our own battalion of National Guard that were de- dedicated just to the like flag footprint. Oh wow. Yeah. And that wasn't even occupied by by public. It wasn't like the Lincoln right. where they had, you know, programming and activities going on. Right. Um right. so yeah, I mean I would say by the time that we got up to Show Day, I mean DC was a fortress, at least the downtown portion of it was and so i mean you always wonder like oh is some screwball going to you know try and but but there was such like a a just absolutely awe inspiring show of force yeah yeah that alleviated a lot of those concerns
0: well and and i'm curious too you guys have both you know lived in dc and and worked these events for many many years is this by far the most amount of security you've ever seen on a site
1: domestically i would say yes for me, domestic internationally maybe not, but domestically for sure. for sure. I mean, we always have. There's always a great coordinated effort between uh, DC police and the Secret Service and Capitol Police when it comes to the inaugural or anything that happens on the Mall that has core principal participation. You know, mm-hmm. there, so I've never felt unsafe at an inaugural um, because of that. Because we have layers upon layers of you know, fencing and checkpoints and all of those other things. But this year was so unique because of the insurrection and the other things that were going on in in our in our country. and mm-hmm. to have the added layer of the this the national guard, that was definitely more than I've ever seen. I, I can't speak for John, but domestically for sure. Um, and it once we were on site and we were inside the fence line, I felt very, very secure. I definitely thought about what I wore. Um, making sure I wasn't wearing credentials on the outside of my jacket or anything that indicated I was related to the inaugural when I wasn't on site, just because that was constantly on my mind. So as we were walking from um, from the hotel or walking from home, um, you know, out in the city, I was very cognizant to wear nondescript things and make sure nothing said screamed out that I was related to the inaugural. And, you know, so, and that was sort of a first because in the past, I'd always been very proud to say I was part of the team publicly. Right. Um, Absolutely. We just, you just had to be very quiet and very cognizant of your environment and what was around you. And, um, you know, in, in my neighborhood when all of the things in early January were going on, they were, I live a mile, less than a mile from the Capitol. So every, everybody was staying in the hotels next to where I live and the, the, you know, Lots of activity was happening in the neighborhood, and it just made me so so aware.
0: Unbelievable, yeah. I mean, I that's fascinating to hear that just the fact that yeah, it made more sense for you to hide your credentials until you absolutely needed them, um, instead of the opposite. You know, um, what was really nice though is once it kind of started uh, going and the event was happening, uh, I saw a few things on social that was really inspiring and. One of my favorite photos is a bunch of you all gathered around in all your winter gear uh you know around a kubota or a mule and uh watching the actual run of show from an ipad and yeah. I, I thought that was brilliant so uh so talk to me a little bit about that so clearly you guys were able to to stay on the national mall but you weren't you know going to get anywhere close to the steps or anything but what was how was that like especially you know and, and john too getting back to the other inaugurations that you've done in the past where you're managing millions of people in the crowd, plus the run of show, um, walk me through how it felt to be reunited with a lot of your old coworkers at C3 and Live Nation, as well as the local labor crews that you've worked for so many years. Um, How did that feel uh, being in that moment and then watching it uh, the way you did?
2: It was wild. I mean, first of all, yes, being back and working with our colleagues from C3 who were the, you know, the lead on the project, um, was you know great reunion uh, putting the band back together as it were mm-hmm. um same team now that had come together uh in, in 2009 and 2013 it was very great just to, to see everybody to see anybody in person uh was great <laughs> yeah. um the specific instance that you were pointing to with the golf cart Mm-hmm. um that was sort of a cool moment that i i, I took a step back to capture because i i i thought it, it had a certain uh sort of old master painting quality to it mm-hmm. you know last supper sort of all the the heads scattered i don't know it felt like a classical composition to me mm-hmm. um in any case we're because of the nature of what we were doing it was really just a public art exhibit there was no pa down there on the the them all to give us the remarks while it was all happening. Right. Um, so yeah, we were just uh, we all gathered at a at a point that was not quite as close as you could get, um, but it, it was closest to. It was convenient for everybody to get together, um, and yeah, one of the folks on the team had their iPad there, and that was the best way we were we were able to watch it. Um, yeah. But you know it was cool just to be with that group. Um, and yeah, it was a very, very special moment. You know, it wasn't, it, yeah, it wasn't anything like 2013 where we had huge audiences and DHPA and, <laughs> and all that stuff. Yeah. But it was still a very special moment. Um, and yeah, I was very grateful to be a part of it.
1: Yeah. When you have live events as the producer, rarely do you get to stop and actually watch the event because right. you are right. everywhere. Like, often John's yeah. backstage. Directing traffic and getting people moving up and down, and so, and I'm out in the audience, moving crowds and making sure access control is happening, and all those other things. We rarely get to stop and actually watch the show, so it was it was a very nice accidental happenstance that we it's all an
2: excellent point, Jen. I yeah. hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, it's so so rare is that that we that you have enough bandwidth
1: to stop and watch the show, and and that's we had all gathered sort of. Some of us had had were going up there on purpose. we were on what we called flag watch, that gigantic American flag that was uh, at Third street. We wanted to make sure as we knew we had forty and fifty mile an hour winds coming. and we wanted to make sure that wasn't going to oh, fly wow. away in the middle of the remarks. right. but we were just we happened to just all slowly migrate into that space and and be to be together. Also, is very rare because when you're in the middle of a of a job, everybody is off doing their thing in their own lane. Rarely are we side by side, so that right. really was a great way to get to watch the show. And you know, we were, as John said, as close as we could get um, with m- multiple layers of fencing and National Guard between us and and the steps of the Capitol. But it was it was a great way to sort of be together and celebrate the journey we had just been on. My aunt, as well as the journey this country is getting ready to take.
0: Absolutely, I mean it's it, it was beyond beautiful to see uh, not only what you guys did, but just how it all fit in, and then the the TV program at the end of the night. Uh, was on uh, you know was incredible as well, and and I have to say that was probably the best fireworks celebration I've ever seen. I don't know how you guys felt, but yeah. wow,
1: <laughs> hands down, hands down, it vibrated the walls of every building in downtown DC. It oh my gosh! Well, you know
0: it's good when you have Gene Simmons tweeting that it was the best thing he's ever seen, and that guy's seen some pyro. So <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think uh, I think uh, I think y'all did such a great job. Well. So now the inauguration's done, you guys crushed it, and and it was just, you know, better than expected in so many ways, and it was safe. So now we're in February, and we're looking forward to what we can do, uh, you know, with 2021. I, I wanted to kind of, you know, ask you guys, what do you all, what's your crystal ball look like? What do you think 2021 is going to be like in terms of outdoor events and in terms of political events as well? Do you see it returning more to normal, or do you kind of feel like uh, we might have a little while to go?
2: Uh, John, why don't you start? Yeah, I mean, I don't pretend to be clairvoyant about these things. I just know that this is going to be a year of backup plans, Mm -hmm. that anything that you do or decide to do, I feel like just needs to have um, some flexibility to it. Uh, whether it be in the timing, the venue, the capacity. Um, You know, I think that there is tremendous opportunity for live events to come back Um, when specifically that happens. I mean, I think we see a lot of the sort of industry consensus seeming to congeal around this fall. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, the smart money has backups going into, you know, the spring of Following year, mm-hmm. um, I think when we do come back, we will come back profoundly different. I just think the customer base and otherwise just going to have a different perspective on on what uh, public gatherings should look and feel like, mm-hmm. um, and what's what safety you know procedures need to be taken and the like. Um, but you know, with my other hat as a festival promoter and producer um on you know i can say that you know we have we have stuff that we're lining lining up for this fall um but i think again it's a year of backup plans just need to need to be prepared for the unexpected uh in a way that you know events always have to be insulated in that in that regard um even more so now
0: got it uh, Jen, what about you? And and what are some of the projects that FrontRunner Productions are, are doing in the spring and the summer uh, to kind of keep things going in twenty twenty one?
1: I don't have a lot to add to what John said. I th- I think the at large we're looking at the fall. It's really hard to say when we'll get back to doing in person events. I had a conversation with an industry colleague yesterday who said, "Oh, I'm going to do my trade show in L.A. in June," and mm-hmm. I was I looked at him sort of quizzically, like, "Really? I don't. I haven't heard anything from the governor, you know." So it'll be interesting to see how those sorts of things pan out. The you know the special events industry has been hit so hard, and everyone wants it to come back. I think this pandemic has hit so many industries very very in a very hard way but special events in general they touch so many other industries. When we put on an event, it's not just our revenue that we're trying that we're losing or gaining, it's also everything from the food and beverage provider to the audiovisual to staging to the labor itself. There's so many facets that go into this and there's so many people involved when we start doing live events again. I think, as John mentioned that it is gonna look very different it's mm-hmm. we've we've already got a lot of protocols in place for the very few things that our our um, production team has been doing what few uh, in person events have been happening are have been very carefully scripted for this spring. We're still working on a continuation of online series of events um to promote everything from supporting voting rights, getting people out into the market, getting people active again in their communities, but trying to do it in a really creative way. And you know, some of our annual projects are now looking at having 5,000 person conventions online, and that's a challenge, but we're yeah. gonna do it. And our clients are open-minded about it and they're looking forward to figuring how to get everybody back at the table in the safest way possible. Uh, and as we slowly transition back from virtual to hybrid to fully in person again we're mm-hmm. just learning to be flexible with everything everything absolutely timing budgets you know uh, labor every every individual is just working with what they've got and being as flexible as possible to get there
0: absolutely and and i i fully agree with you guys as well i mean i i think we're all hoping for a really big fall and whether that's a mixture of, you know, proving that you're vaccinated or having a rapid test or reaching herd immunity or whatever it takes to get back to that point where these large events make sense again. Um, I know we're all, you know, fingers crossed and 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 that's the thing is nobody knows. Right. Yeah. Um, and every day we get new information and. Uh, new hopeful updates in terms of the vaccinations. Um, But at the same time, we do have, you know, a road ahead of us.
1: I think we'll see a lot of uh, good invention come out of this too. I think we'll Mm -hmm. see a lot of good practices, things that maybe we didn't do before, like having sanitation stations everywhere, even indoors, not just outside the portalette. You know the COVID testing is is getting better and better and better. COVID, uh, you know contact tracing. I think RFID is going to have a huge role in contact tracing at, at events and stuff like that in the future. And there's a lot of really great products that have been created as a result of this. So I think we'll also find some new industries and new businesses cropping up.
0: Yeah, I, I fully agree, and you're right. Best practices. We can reinvent this book now because uh, we have the time, <laughs> we have the bandwidth, and we're able to do it. And and on that note, um, as we start to wrap up here. I wanted to kind of get an idea. I know you guys have, have had a really busy year, which is, which is fantastic. Were you able to find anything new to read or listen to that was inspiring to you or anything you'd like to share with our audience? Uh, John, do you
2: have anything? I would say, yeah. I mean, I, I found myself getting a lot more into, I would say long form communication in general, you know, when I was at my busiest, uh, working live events often didn't have a lot of time to read much beyond like short form news media, things like that. Sure. I would say, yeah. In the in the past year I've probably read nine or 10, you know, long form books. And I've also been listening to a lot of podcasts. Great. Um, but even more recently, I would say what has been filling the the podcast vibe is clubhouse. Everybody's on clubhouse. It's like a really, I think, unique outlet for our conversation. Um, and as far as things to be listening to right now, uh, I think that there's some very interesting stuff going on in that space.
0: Excellent. Well, we'll we'll make sure we have a link to that on our webpage so um, anyone that's interested can take a look. Uh, Jen, what about you? Anything interesting you're reading or listening to or have been the last year?
1: Yeah, you know, I really enjoy my podcasts. I use those in the morning when I am uh, exercising and running with the dog. Um, pot. That's how I catch up on some of the things happening in the world. I've always been an avid reader, and I and I, I love to read. And uh, you know, I'll I'll depending on the year, depending on time and bandwidth, I'll read several dozen books. Depending on how it is this year, um, I picked up a book, several books in real life. So as was as the rest <laughs> of the world was going virtual, I decided to step away from my Kindle and actually pick up paperback books again which was really nice to take myself back to the smell of the paper and the feel of the binding right. and all of that was yeah. really kind of fun and a book that I'm reading right now it's called um, First You Have to Row a Little Boat um, by Richard Bodie Bode. and it's a fascinating story about uh, a man who was a lifelong sailor but failed to teach his children how to sail and was always something he wanted to do. So he wrote this book as a way of leaving a legacy and imparting some of his wisdom to his children. I'm an avid sailor, an avid boater. I live on a boat. I'm on boats all the time. And right. I sailing, to me, there's so much about sailing that it can be um, translated into real life and how that that's applicable. So I thought this book was really a fun. He's done a nice job of sort of taking what he knows about being on the water and applying it to experiences in life and how when you learn a skill on the sailboat, how it applies to a skill that's applicable in the workforce. And so that was really kind of a fun, enlightening book. I started reading this fall and and sort of stretched out and enjoyed it. Yeah,
0: it sounds it sounds perfect for you, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. When I heard the boat in the title, I was like, "Oh, that's that's definitely a Jen book. I love it." <laughs> um, well, and and before we get to our final question, Jen, I wanted to uh, touch base on one other thing. You had mentioned early on um, in your origin story that you know you did get a degree in the events world, and you really appreciated it and you thought it it you know was a really great experience for you now that people might have a little bit more time and they might have some bandwidth, um, would you recommend, um, you know, people to try to do the same thing to try to go back and get that degree or or get a CMP or something of that nature? Do you feel like it would be worthwhile while we're kind of in this hiatus?
1: 100%. So, um, I am, uh, I have my master's degree. I'm also a CMP and I've started even now, you know, I've had my, my CMP for 20 years And yet uh, I'm now going to go and maybe get a CSEP, Certified Special Events Professional Credentialing. All of that, you learn a lot hands-on. You learn a lot in the field with your colleagues, but nothing can really replace having good structure taught to you. And one of the things that I got out of that program that I enjoyed so much, and George Washington University, I can't say enough good things about them. Their program was started by a gentleman named Joe Goldblatt, and they were one of the first universities to have a formal program for the special events industry. And it really put to paper an organizational structure of how you should tackle the various categories that are within an event. You know, like I said, whether it is a birthday party or inauguration, the logistics, the pieces you have to think about are almost identical. They just vary in size. And but to have to see it in a textbook and to re- write about it and, re- and create your own event and have someone there correcting you and adjusting and offering good tutelage was really invaluable. Even down to budgeting and creating contingency. I'm amazed at how many people don't have contingency plans when they put together an event or they don't have an operations manual. Both of you have suffered, and Katie, who's listening in, have suffered through my operation manuals, but they are so useful and so helpful. And they, they come down to, at the end of the day, if all else falls apart, where do we look? Where What was our plan supposed to be? And I got all of those skills, all that, those ideas came from that master's program with GW and through the CMP studying that I did, you know, getting your CMP is not easy. And and it took six months of studying and you have to have so many hours of qualified work experience and all this other stuff, but it was so worth it um, because I walked away with something tangible I could point to and say, that is an applicable thing I still use today. 20 right. plus years, I hate to admit how long it's been since I graduated from my master's program, but you know, things that I apply to my job every day today, I learned in right. that program. And I would encourage anybody to do it.
0: Well, that's that's incredible and I and we'll send some links on our webpage in regard to that as well and and for you listeners at home in regard to those manuals uh, Jen was referring to they are epic and um, and they actually she even goes so far as to make them wire bound so you can just turn the pages real quick it's oh it's it, they're the best so uh, yet another thing we uh, we're missing from the pandemic um well guys we'll we'll close out with uh with a final thought uh John. You know, and you guys are, are lucky to answer this because you recently, you probably have an updated answer. Uh, what are three favorite items that you can't live with out on site uh, when you're working a gig?
2: Let Jen go first on this one. I need to give it some thought.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jen, what are, your, you know, what are your three irreplaceable items when you're outside working a gig?
1: So, on every job I've ever done, whether I was working in a hotel, a convention center, or in the field somewhere, I always have three pairs of shoes. No.
0: Oh, okay. So shoe, no shoe, shoes, shoes, shoes. Shoes,
1: shoes, shoes. And and I, and I have to get, I have to throw a little credit to our colleague Jason Duty. He taught me to change my socks, and that was a big yes. deal. Um, and it's something when we were out doing the inaugural, I had to walk up to him and say, you know my day just got a little brighter because of your idea. I changed my (laughs) socks. And Jason was like, I can't believe you remember that. So, you know, I always have multiple pairs of shoes because when you're running, we often are on concrete running around. You're not, you know, you have to change your shoes. That's just critical. I think the other thing that is super duper important to me now, obviously, you know, we have our radios. We really need those. But having access to my iPad so that I have all those Documents that we create for events, whether it's event orders, the operations manual, the rooming list, the staff contact list, all of that, right, is di- having it digitized and on an iPad, not just my iPhone, is really right. important. And then I think, um, just so I can read it, because I'm getting older now, my eyes don't work as well. Um, <laughs> and then I think the other thing that really keeps us going are snacks.
0: Yeah, big fan of snacks. Yeah, yeah. we
1: have to have snacks a- around all the time. I mean, everything else um sort of once the once the event starts and it's rolling it sort of does its thing but if you can't change your shoes if you can't access your information access your information and you can't keep yourself hydrated and and full of you know uh, energy you're not going right. to make it, so. <laughs>
0: You're not going to make it. Well, and, and actually bringing up duty real quick. Um, so, correct uh, me if I'm wrong, but he was uh, part of the team that helped uh, secure the flags and and
2: buy them, correct? He helped procure them? He was the sorcerer in chief. Yeah, yes. he was the, he, he single
1: handed. He tracked
2: down every one of those 200,000. And like I said, there were many, many different types of flags, different mm-hmm. sizes of flags, et cetera. All had to be sourced from, you know, U.S. providers. It was incredibly complicated logistical effort, um, wow. and yes, he should
0: be saluted for that. Well, special thanks to to duty for that. Uh, yeah. you know, our hats are off to you, sir. Yeah, I can only imagine how you know complicated that was. Well, you know, uh, to wrap up, John, do, have you thought of your third? Are uh, your three favorite items?
2: Um, well, I think every. I would second everything that Jen said. First of all, uh, those were all excellent um (laughs) observations the uh i become incredibly reliant on my apple devices as well Mm -hmm. an ipad is sort of central to my workflow i'm against paper i i like to not print things or have to handle printed things if at all possible um and so the ipad is great for that i think uh, the, I, the Apple watch has sort of revolutionized my workflow when I'm on an event site. Cause one of the chief challenges I think is the fact that like, you're expected to be on your feet and responding to things that are happening in like the physical environment. Right. Um, but you're also expected to be like on your computer and responding to all your emails and text messages and calendar, you know obligations and, and otherwise and right. i find that that is incredibly challenging to do without my little watch to poke me and tell me oh you just got a message from somebody that's important like know right. when to leave that physical space to di- hop into my phone or hop on to my ipad so i can like get some you know communication done with the outside world right so i think yeah i love i love my apple products <laughs> Absolutely, and and I agree. I just bring one pair of extra shoes. I don't do that. <laughs> just one. <laughs> but do you have extra socks?
0: That's the million dollar question here.
2: uh Yes, yes. Wherever possible. So the, extra. the the extra socks to go with the extra shoes.
0: Well, and and let me ask you guys this. You know, we're about to do uh, an on-site gig this weekend here in Austin. And for some reason, um, it's going to be really, really cold. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be cold in D.C. as well. But we're looking at temperatures in the teens here, which is almost unheard of. Wow. And so um, I went ahead and bought a heated vest. I'm curious if you guys have ever used one of these or if you got, know anybody that had one at the inauguration. Uh, but they seem a to work A heated well. vest?
1: That's a great idea, Mike.
0: Yeah, I, I won't lie to you. I it, I test drove it yesterday, and it's it's pretty good. So yeah, you have a heat. You can heat up your back, or you could heat up uh, the pockets, the front pockets, and it just stays on for eight hours, and it gives you constant
2: heat. Wow! So it's like a, a heated blanket with a battery.
0: Yeah, it's a heated blanket with a battery, but it's it's lightweight. So if if I just handed you the, the jacket or the vest, you wouldn't know that it had anything extra in it. And then the battery is just any sort of uh, thing that you would charge your cell phone with. So you can actually charge your cell phone while you're wearing your heated uh, vest as well. That's so you can do both. That's too things. much,
1: Mike. Mike, that is, that is too much. That is absolutely insane. You're going to walk I know, around. I
2: know. Hey,
1: Katie he's going to end up electrocuting himself. Watch out. (laughs) You know, I I always find that, I always find my extremities get cold first. So I always have hand warmers and toe warmers. Yes. And you know, that comes from years of, of being in snow and skiing and stuff like that. But I recently did an event in negative 20, degrees and that was the lifesaver was having uh some you know toe warmers in my boots and hand warmers in my gloves i don't know about this vest thing mike that sounds well well, well.
0: i'll keep you posted i'll let you know but (laughs) uh well well guys thank you so much for uh being on our podcast we we greatly appreciate it it was it was very insightful And, and in fact you know just hearing the inner workings of everything you guys have done in the last year uh was was unbelievable to hear. So uh, John and Jennifer, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you so much for
2: having us.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, thanks again to Jen and John for coming on our podcast today. And remember, if you'd like to view the links we talked about, learn more about their company, Frontrunner Productions, or reach out to them directly, please visit podcast.festivalandeventproduction.com. Well, since we recorded that interview, I have since had the chance to put the infamous heated vest to good use. We were uh, outside today doing a loadout, and I think the high temperature was 32 degrees, uh, but it felt more like 20. And I have to say, it's pretty good. You can definitely feel it, especially when you're sitting down on, let's say, a cold golf cart seat. And uh, for around $40, it's not that big of an investment either. And of course, we'll have a link to it on our webpage if you want to take a closer look. But what worked just as well were these disposable hand warmers that our site manager, Kristen Moen, brought for everybody. They're great. They're called hot hands. You put a couple in your pocket or your gloves or even your shoes, and you're set for hours. In fact, we activated these maybe around 11 or so today or noon, and um, it's over, it's already been nine or 10 hours, and it's still, still going strong. So that's that's pretty wild. And I checked and they get up to 112 degrees. So they are definitely this winter event season's hot item. Well, before we close this episode, I wanted to highlight a nonprofit that has been essential during this pandemic, and that is We Are Blood. Started in 1951, We Are Blood is a provider and protector of the Central Texas blood supply, and they serve over 40 hospitals and medical facilities in a 10 county area. And while giving blood is always something needed in virtually every community, The need is heightened by COVID, especially for COVID-19 plasma. So for those of you that have had COVID, being able to go there and donate plasma is a huge help to so many people. But also regular normal blood donation called whole blood and platelet donation and something special they call double red cell donations are needed just as urgently. So I encourage you to seek out a blood donation organization like We Are Blood, which we'll have a link in our webpage to. A really cool search engine that can find a similar blood center where you live or you can also use the red Cross's website to locate a blood drive near you which are happening all across the country well that about wraps it up for today's episode on behalf of myself and my producer katie we thank you for listening to festival and event presents industry insights we'll be back very soon in the meantime stay safe out there and we will see you down the
2: road